Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhaj. It's uh, Roxanne Durhaj. How are you today? Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, this week I have a, a young, lovely young woman that I met in Toronto. Oh, goodness, it's been about two weeks ago now at um, round table um, on mental health that where we, we were um, asked as um, basically subject matter experts to discuss inclusivity and diversity in the workplace. And this is something uh, that will be uh, the report will probably put out, I think, about a year from now uh, for recommendations to, uh, to work environments across Canada. So, Marty, thanks again for uh, coming on. I, I, st I snuck Marty aside and asked her to come on because she has an expertise working with uh, youth and especially uh, in the area of marginalized youth. So, Marty, tell us a little bit about, um, about what you've done so far, and then we're going to kind of jump into your story. Ah, okay, what I've done so far. So this particular part of my story started in 2015 uh, when I began as a peer support worker. So what that is, is someone who identifies with lived experience of, other, of either mental health or homelessness in my context um, to work with other young people in order to role model uh, behaviors, paths of recovery, and uh, also give a social relationship rather than just a clinically based one. Mm -hmm. uh, so when that started, I was placed on a research project called the Housing Outreach Project Collaborative, and it was a pilot based in Toronto where we studied 30 youth uh, over six months. It was called a longitudinal study who had just been housed um, between one and 365 days. So what was interesting about that was we were giving them a menu of support. So they had uh, access to mental health supports, peer support, which is what I did, uh, <clears throat> case management, and uh, as well as social uh, recreational supports, which was a bit innovative in terms of a research project. So this project actually was the catalyst for the work that I do right now. Um, and what became of that was we saw that Young people were accessing everything, but peer support was new in terms of a support for mental health. And so how could we make it more, uh, more tasty? You know, how could we bring them in? Mm -hmm. And so the idea that came around was to have a project uh, for the young people uh, to engage and talk about their experiences of homelessness and deliver a product to other young people based on that. So the main question I had them focus on was uh, what would you have liked to known five years ago or 10 years ago before all of this started? What information was missing for you um, in terms of resources, in terms of support, in terms of coping skills? Hmm. So, okay, so your background, did you go to school for, you, did you go to school for social work where you, did you just kinda, your path was, you, you are young, obviously you're quite young. If, for anybody can, that can see her, she's very young. Um, <laughs> and so she's obviously working in an arena which she fits into in her age demographic. 
did you go to school and decide you wanted to work with this or was it something that you kind of felt found along the way? Uh, things have a funny way of coming full circle. Uh, so when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to go down this path and, you know, conversations came up about, uh, are you going to burn out from this work? You know, is it going to pay your bills? So many questions. Uh, so I went what I thought was the safe route. And that was political science and art history completely <laughs> <laughs> unrelated. And I think I had that leverage because I did have uh, scholarships for university. So I took advantage of being able to kind of study my interests instead of what I thought my career would be. And in my third year, uh, that's when I started accessing clinical services for uh, my mental health uh, in school. And from there, I fell into this thing called peer support, which wasn't well-defined and have emerged uh, almost five years later, defining it for the field. Tell me what you thought about the supports. I've done a, a fair amount of um, work with universities. Tell me how, I mean, you don't even have to identify the university, obviously, that you went to, but anybody that knows you would know what you're talking about. You no, no need to say the name. How did you find that intervention as a young person at that level for mental health? Um, it was not what I expected it to be. In universities, the focus is getting you back to your academics. They're not there to cater to long-term mental health support. So I was surprised to find out that they took a short-term solutions-based approach, mm -hmm. which essentially what they're doing is trying to figure out, okay, what exactly can we help you with right now? And what I found was my issues were far beyond their scope. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they were not able to refer me out. And I've come to understand that this is a very common experiences for students. Um, which is why they will continue to go to school, suffer through whatever illness they're, um, they're going through. And a lot of them are international students who, mm -hmm. if they stop going to school, they'll have to leave the country. And when they go back home, they can't deal with those psychological issues. Um, so it's really a catch-22 for a lot of students. I fell into services only because of people I knew outside of the institution. Mm -hmm. So really, and I mean, this perspective, and I was, uh, you know, part of a clinical team that went into university is that absolutely, right, there's a big accommodation arm, right? So of course, you have the, you know, IEPs or in independent learning plans that a lot of students go on. And so they kind of make sure that those are kind of tended to, which really speaks to keeping people in school. To yeah. your point, not all the peer pressures or if it's, you know, all the, the pressures around um, things like, um, you know, using substances, sexuality, um, you know, you know, um, you know, just, just the everything about related to being away from home too, oftentimes. And I know when I went to university and I was a foreign student, oh my goodness, like talk about thinking I was ready for the world and how really not ready I was for the world and all the pressures of academics and all those things. So there's a lot of things colliding and the press, some of the pressures that existed exist now, I know for a fact did not exist, you know, um, 25, 30 years ago when I went to school. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot more pressure, but I think uh, there's a lot more pressure. Like I definitely wouldn't want to be uh, 10 years younger than I am and going through it right now, uh, for sure. But I think as well, the access to communication, the access to information has made such a ripple to the point where people are upset because they know that there could be more done. 
you know, for mm -hmm. them. They're upset because they know that they're being shortchanged by the system. And the only reason we can feel that way is because we have awareness now. So it's definitely a stepping stone in the process. So, so let's talk about peer support. I mean, and, you know, in my kind of um, career, I've had, I've had various touch points with peer support. But from your perspective, like, let's think about when you were in university and kind of how you kind of fell into or got um, attached to some type of peer support, what existed? And let's then get into this study that you, you kind of went into. And let's, I'd really like to know, first of all, what is different and what is needed for young people today to really, what's the hook? I guess I have, I, I'm, I'm thinking very unipolar. I'm sure there's diverse things that could come, but kind of tell me what existed when you were there and then bring us up to speed with the project that you worked on. Sure. So uh, when I first started accessing uh, mental health supports, we had, I think, two or three peer supporters uh, in the department that I was a part of. And it was a very informal role. So you would, um, I found after I was hired, what that involved was showing up to groups or the drop-in, uh, just kind of being a point person for new people who would come in, uh, give them some information, and uh, just kind of be a sounding board for questions that people had. So you would come in, you'd sign your timesheet, you'd get paid in cash. So essentially, you're uh, a volunteer uh, getting an honoraria. So that looks very, very different five years later at the same place. Uh, now we are on payroll where we are considered full staff, full uh, members of staff. So we go to staff meetings, we contribute to the service plan. Um, we have access to clients and client case files. So we're basically in line with the caseworkers with, with a completely different specialty. Um, in terms of the issues that young people are facing, if I had to pick one and why this comes into play is uh, social isolation. So even in this almost utopia of information that's out there, uh, all you can do, what people end up doing is going online and reading firsthand accounts. What does this feel like? What does this uh, sound like going through a day in the life of someone with X, Y, and Z illness? Um, that's not a real human to talk to and ask these questions to. Peer support comes in very handy uh, for people experiencing uh, mental distress when you're considering something like medication. Um, if you've never been medicated before, you can read all you want. You might read horror stories. And when you talk to someone and ask, what were you considering when you thought about taking medication for the first time? You're gonna, you'll have a completely different response where you can judge someone's authenticity, um, where you can take them being genuine and think that they really do care about the outcome of this choice for you. And this is the value of peer support when you hear the number one issue is that we're all connected, but there's no social um, socializing that's actually happening uh, on a face-to-face -face basis. So why, okay, so like I often say, you know, I'm the older generation than you. People pick up the phone and then oftentimes I know with my friends or my family, I'll say, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to sit on the phone. Why don't we just get together, right? Right. And that really was the way I grew up in a lot of ways. Mind, mind you, you know, I know so much has shifted. And the modus operandi today is for younger people. You know, I, w I used to see it with my son um, as he became a teenager and they'd be in the same room and they'd be like talking to each other and they're like sitting to, but they're on their devices. And I'm like, okay, guys, what are you doing? 
Yeah. And, they, and they'd be like, well, you know, so-and-so's upstairs and, you know, this person's here and we're all kind of playing the same game. And I'm like, well, are you playing? Right. <laughs> and yeah. so is that, would you say that if you were to look at socialization, because I, as we know, we're all mammals, we need to connect. We need, mm-hmm. um, as a psychotherapist, as a consultant, as a coach, what I know is Someone could be in mental distress, but all it takes oftentimes is for them to modulate their emotions sitting across from me or someone else right. that just allows them to bring down their space to that other person's space to just connect. And that's not happening as much. Right. I completely understand what you're saying. I think the gamer's context is very interesting because uh, even coming out of my circumstances, I loved online communities uh, when they were still very new, when people were still very uh, scared of them, you know, Mm -hmm. because you can't see the face on the other side. And I took comfort in that as like a tween, as a teen, uh, having no one to talk to about my circumstances. I thought like, oh, well, is a community of people who will never even get to touch my life in a meaningful way you know I can talk to them and at least have someone listen right when it comes to gaming I think it's a great way for people who do already suffer uh, from struggling to socialize in person with people for feeling a bit isolated regardless of technology due to whatever circumstances I think it's a great alternative and people dismiss online communities too easily I find when you can find one for literally anything right there's one out there for everyone um in terms of the more mainstream folks who can be in the same room and looking at their devices but not communicating this is more of an issue because you have a relationship that's already existing with the Mm -hmm. person in front of you Mm -hmm. it's not um conditional i guess you could say and to to be cut off from that um intimacy it is a type of intimacy uh to do an activity together um i guess the part even myself i struggle with is what what's the difference between those two things doing an activity together online yes it's cool share electronically but what what is hard about going outside about doing something not with your screens you know i find with the young people i work with that aren't uh aren't on the extremes of the margins you know like more like teens they come together they play together what i see them doing is making videos together and i thought oh that's that's pretty cool you know they have to talk and communicate before they get on that video mm-hmm. right so maybe there is something there um for myself i would find that completely awkward <laughs> but this is it like uh things are changing really fast so even though the technology is is taken just to a space where I can decide what level of intimacy I want. I often say when I was growing up, you know, it was kind of like you got go outside and play, right? And then mm-hmm. between your siblings and who was in your neighborhood, guess what? Your, your mom's like, why are you inside? And you'd go back outside again. Right. But obviously with the shift in things, and it's, it's not just one variable, it's not just online. It's, it's the fact that people, you know, obviously the structure of the family, um, what's conventional, who's home, you know, um, there's so many variables that are happening all at once. And then, of course, you know, we're living in bigger cities. We're not as connected. There's a lot of things. Right. But the kids that, you know, and not for me to say, other than I can tell you what I've seen in my practice over the years, is people are looking for connection. 
Yes, I think um, if I could add something to it, um, the way that technology operates now, if I shift the context to marginalization, mm. you know, um, when I was in high school and cell phones were becoming a bit more advanced and uh, you had two screens instead of one screen, you know, <laughs> and it wasn't just T9 texting, uh, it became a form of social isolation. It became a form of uh, you don't have this, therefore you can't participate. Um, for me, I found it really difficult because there were times where, you know, you missed an, an invite or a change of plans because everybody had sent a text, but you didn't have a phone or you didn't have a phone that was active. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't be a part of that experience. And it's an oversight. It's something that happens, but it still hurts. It's still very hurtful mm -hmm. to feel like you're forgotten. So what I see now when I talk to you know, people in their mid-20s or a bit younger is that having a phone is almost completely necessary to having a social life, to mm. connection. And if you take it out of the urban context and you go somewhere remote like Thunder Bay, you know, if you don't have a cell phone, you have nothing. You mm -hmm. cannot access a single thing when you have telehealth, you know, when you have all these alternative services that are based in technology. If people don't have access to phones, let alone phone service and data, you know, they're experiencing heightened social isolation and possibly like something that could affect their physical health as well. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that from a social isolation perspective, right? You think of you know, our technology is connection, but really in of itself, because you're saying the mode of connected has shifted, right? Whereas when I was a teenager, I grew up in the islands and, you know, it'd be like, okay, you were lucky if you had a telephone to begin with. That's, yeah. another, that's another time. But what we often did is we would, we would ask because we would make a point of trying to say, oh, by the way, I'm having this get together or having this party. So we were still doing it from a, from a very kind of connected kind of way. So we go to technology, we're shifted. It's a positive thing. Obviously, we have globalization now, which is phenomenal. But in, an, in, in that perspective, there's all the negative that's happening to these younger people. Like you're, you're talking to, you know, um, marginalized communities in Thunder Bay, North Bay, all those types of things. And those kids are having equally the same kind of concerns as kids in, you know, uh, developed environments like Vancouver, Toronto, all those things but they're not having any way of being connected in any form. Right. And um, on top of that, just using the example from Thunder Bay, because I've had the opportunity to go up quite a few times and the issues again from Toronto and beyond are very different. And because the, um, the primary community up there is indigenous, right? Uh, you have kids with no access to a phone or maybe they do, but the phone is dead. They want to go to the store and the store clerk discriminates against them based on their ethnicity, which is indigenous. So all of a sudden you have amplified um, disengagement, you know, from the system and amplified isolation and amplified complexity uh, mm -hmm. for people that might be 13 or 14 years old, you know, that's a lot. And it, I don't have a solution to that, you know, but it's something that I think we do need to be more mindful of and more aware of. Um, in one panel I was a part of, a young person said, we need to have phones first. Forget about housing first. We need phones first. And I thought, well, geez, that's a, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Because <laughs> if I'm connected and I'm able to cope internally, 
by developing it, you know, that internal space, I call it internal landscape, right? Like, I mean, you know, I often used to say to my son when he would say, I'm bored and he'd say, mom, I'm bored. And I'd say, you know, what's that thing attached to your neck? And he'd go, what? I go, that's your brain, right? He goes, yeah. I said, well, why don't you go use it? And he go, all right. <laughs> and he'd, you know, meander off and figure something out. So connection is really, you know, when you kind of, when you think of the, you know, the shows like 13 Reasons Why, um, I'm here in Niagara, um, and we've had, unfortunately, massive suicides and a lot of mm. drug doses of young people, which is showing us that there is that need. There is that need for connection that all of us have distressing times. I mean, if we, yeah. people, you know, I often say to people and I talk or I, I, I see them, look, all of us have bad thoughts and good thoughts. That's life. But it's what kind of when you learn how to deal with it or figuring out the support systems in order to get what you need to get through those tough times that allows you to build that resilience. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the project you, you, you started to work on and some of those key indicators that you found that young people are seeing that they need um, the ones that are a bit more marginalized. And you said, you asked them a question. I love that question. What is it that you would have liked to know five years previous? Mm -hmm. what, what, were some of the, what were some of the things that you, people were telling you that um, were, were seeking assistance? Uh, so because the project was based in housing and housing supports, um, the question it was seeking to answer is why do young people that have been chronically homeless end up homeless again within one year of housing? Like what factors are contributing to that? Uh, so one of the things is aging out, you know, in a system where you're considered a youth until you're 25, some places say 29, you have a gap that exists for people between 24 and 29. Um, what's happening to them right now, I couldn't tell you because I just became a part of that gap. And it is hard all of a sudden now, at least in Ontario, you know, we have to pay for our prescription medication. Some of us need that in order to sustain a regular life. So learning about the resources that are out there when you hit that age, that's something that came up. Um, emotional regulation, looking to oneself to ask, you know, what is it that I do want to do now that I'm trying to get my life on track? What happens now that I have to let all these people go that were part of my old life so I can move on into a bit more stability? Um, how do I deal with the trauma of what I went through? And mo most importantly, because of this concept of homelessness, what happens when I finally have a home? What mm -hmm. is a home? You know, and this question is so much more layered than we give it credit for. Um, and it's one of the issues that's coming up with Housing First is that Housing First is great because you're giving someone four walls. But what within those four walls needs to happen uh, for someone to feel comfortable, to feel human, uh, to feel connected to community, right? So what, uh, what the young people decided to do uh, was in the spirit of something that we call by youth for youth. So I'm a young person leading other young people. These young people decided that they wanted to create a survival guide. Uh, in order to capture that experience of feeling lost and moving into stability uh, when it comes to housing. So they put recipes in it. They put mm. uh, crosswords, like activities. They put uh, some coping skills to deal with tough times. They put bucket lists to start generating that idea of hope and moving on. Um, they put 
uh, motivational quotes, pictures to color in. And all of that was based on things that they enjoyed, uh, things that they learned that they wanted and things that keep them busy. So they know that when you're in your house and there's nothing to do, that's when the isolation begins. You know, that's when you say, okay, well, I don't know what's in my neighborhood. You look at that list that says, check out the resources in your neighborhood and go, okay, maybe I should do that. You know, it's just little prompts along the way. Wow, um, that sounds amazing, right? Because, you know, joking around, like, you know, when you have the guidance, like I, you know, like I speak to talking about my son and, you know, I would say, you know, you, you know, the, you know, you could go down the street, you can go fishing or you can, um, your friends can kind of pick up and you guys can go right on your bike and you can go to Tim Hortons to have a, you know, a slushy or whatever, so it's some of those things that maybe, so would, would you say that some of these marginalized kids was there, and I'm assuming here, Marnie, so don't, I don't know that this is true. Was there a lot of trauma and instability in family systems or some, some not? Uh, some not, you know, like it really depends. People leave home for a variety of reasons. I know my reason for leaving was based on uh, a continued instability and a continued uh feeling of unrest, which was how long will I have this roof over my head until I get evicted again or until I have to go or until, 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 and living on edge like that for, you know, over 18 years, it really like messes you up in some ways. And it's okay to say that. I would say the reasons uh, for my young people were varied. You know, some people came here as immigrants and they came by themselves right? That's how they ended up homelessness and getting out of that as, you know, an 18 year old, like that's pretty tough. You may not even speak the language, right? Mm -hmm. Who knows why you came? You may be a refugee or maybe for more conventional reasons. That's one uh, reason that people don't often consider as uh, how you became homelessness. Is there trauma attached? Probably, mm -hmm. right? But it's not my scenario. Right, right. So it could, there could be a multitude of reasons. So What's the solution? Which one? The solution to, um, if I am trying to get connected, like to your point, and I'm getting integrated into housing, and I've never really kind of lived on my own, and I don't know how to regulate, and I get the space, and I, you know, I want to set up shop, right? Like, I can't wait till I have my own little spot, and all seems good. Well, we know how difficult it is. I know when I moved on my own and I never really truly lived on my own. Um, and now that I think about it, um, I kind of went from university, then got married and did that traditional thing that you guys don't do anymore, which is not a bad thing. How do those individuals get support to, to, to maintain um, independence without kind of freaking out, to put it bluntly? Um, so I know for myself, I required a lot of unique support. So that mm -hmm. included uh, having friends to rely on, but it also included my health team, you know, having my doctors to fall back on and having medication uh, to help with those things that I couldn't do myself. Um, what I feel that young people need is really just more support from the system. I was talking to someone the other day about why young people struggle to go out there and seek support and I just think genuinely like in the in the day and time that it is it's unfair to expect young people to come knocking on your door like they know the supports are there just like anyone can look anything up but 
given developmental psychology, given like where they're coming from, mistrust in a system that's let them down so many times for them to be in that situation, why would they come knocking on your door? Mm -hmm. You know, so part of the housing first for youth solution is these post housing supports. Like this is really where um, you will help people thrive because they, in order to sustain a certain lifestyle, you need to have employment or at least a, um, a predictable income, let's say. You need to know where your nearest resources are. You need to have a network of support where you're talking about a lot of folks who don't have families. So where do they get that, right? Some people do social groups. Some people will do fitness classes. Some people just mm. like to be on their own and go about the community there. But to begin to muster up that courage to do all those things, like it is a laundry list, to put it lightly, of things you need to do to get your life on track when you've come out of homelessness. Right, for sure. Because How I, do you do that on your own? <laughs> and, you know, what we know with the prefrontal cortex with uh, young adults, it's not fully developed until age 25, right? Exactly. Formally, it's not developed. So somehow our system and, um, has to engage young people in a way that's a bit different than what's happening now. I'm going to assume there's some things that are happening now that works. And I'm going to assume there's probably a lot more that doesn't work. So what, tell me what are some of the things that you would say um, is not conducive to assisting people that have been marginalized, um, that are trying to reintegrate or just kind of get a, gain a foothold just in, in kind of mainstream society. Sure. I think a lot of uh, services are short term and that's well-intentioned uh, well short term support. The idea is, okay, use this and then get off of it so that you can move on and build your independence. Right. But you, we don't know how long people will need these supports to feel comfortable. One thing we found in the study was people didn't start to fully engage with the whole uh, wraparound service until uh, almost six months into their six-month intervention. Uh, wow. So if that's how long it takes to become comfortable, right, then having someone for only six sessions, like, it's not enough time. It's just not enough time uh, for someone to feel confident enough to move on on their own. I think uh, when it comes to people uh, under 25, let's call it for the general age of youth, we need to look ahead. Um, I think sometimes we forget that things are changing ever so quickly. And when it comes to the types of employment that are available to people with or without education, things are changing for both worlds. You know, jobs are getting automated. If you're a paralegal, for example, like the chances of your job being automated in the future are quite high, just like if you're a cashier, you know, so in both sides of that, are these industries looking ahead when they're considering employment for people on the margins? You know, mm -hmm. are they looking at that when they send them to a job training program? I don't think so, you know? Mm -hmm. So I would challenge those folks to think, how can you unite these two worlds, uh, particularly with employment, because that's the cradle of your well-being uh, to a certain extent, right? Um, well, that got me so fired up. I have to take a breath. <laughs> When it comes to that, what I've heard and what I see is that this concept, this notion of empathy has become very valuable uh, in 2019 and possibly a little bit before now, but definitely moving forward, empathy is an invaluable skill for all industries, including business um, in particular. They're looking for folks who have that, 
a lot of folks who have that are people that have experienced hardship because they've literally gone through the worst. So how mm -hmm. could they not know what it feels like, uh, especially if they're a customer, you know, these types of things. My challenge is how can we unite these two worlds, the corporate world and the not-for-profit world to benefit young people more? Because mm -hmm. often both have mandates to support youth. We live in Canada that says it has a youth policy, but mm -hmm. are the systems looking ahead beyond the next two years beyond the next like four years like we need to look ahead at least 10 you know to set these folks up because if you're 14 and you just entered the system when you're 24 and you're about to exit what will it have done for you to make you into a healthy adult right because you know you you even here today and i'm uh, you know that's is your age demographic marty and i will see people um in my work that will say you know i look at all these educated people out there and there's not jobs to support them, even being educated. Yes. Right. And so, so gone are the days, you know, in my time, it was like, go to school, get a degree, get a good job, buy a house, have the, you know, 2.1 children and life is good. Right. <laughs> that whole concept, you know, it's a different construct today because people are coming out with degrees, which is now not as valuable because we have <clears throat> such so much educated people without the jobs to support them. So, uh, and I'm, I'm just kind of telling you from what I've heard, you can tell me from what you've seen and also what you experienced. And now they're like, okay, well, you want me to go to school, right? Yeah. Can you assure me that when I get out of school, I'm going to have viable, um, you know, um, employment to be able to support the lifestyle that maybe I'm, I, I think I should be entering to, into. And unfortunately that's, unless you have a high specialty on your first um, bout with school that's not happening as much yep uh, I know when I was doing research uh, in-person research I guess you could say uh, trying to figure out in particular in fine art you know what are the avenues here how do I go about it uh, the main message that I received was people value your work experience above all the amount of people who said oh I have folks that have pursued like three levels of education up to their PhD, but they've only ever had two jobs in the industry. I will not hire them, right? I've had people that have done internships here. I trust them fully. I've seen their ability to work. They have credibility. I'm going to hire them. So yeah, just to <laughs> further your point, right? Um, and this, uh, if I can bring it back to peer support and um, this access, it's a huge question right now um, for people who want to pursue it because it is gaining traction, um, is how do I find a job in this? You know, what's the minimum education? And there isn't a minimum formal education a lot of time. Usually it's based on a minimum age or a catchment area um, or a area of lived experience. So if we take it out of like, homelessness and mental health, maybe the area of experience is uh, eating disorders. You know, um, that's not my experience, but there are others who do have that. So maybe that job is more applicable mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. um, but where this comes in is that uh, the jobs available for peer support workers are very slim. You know, there actually needs to be more funding injected to the permanent structures of organizations instead of it just being grant-based. Uh, in order to give people that security, right? It's 2019, you can create a job, you know, and jobs are being created that didn't exist 10 years ago, 20 years ago. This is one of them, right? But do enough people know about it? 
to invest in that. This is where the hard work has to be done. Right. And, and, and economically, that's not where they put their money, you know, in structure, right? Because I mean, let's look into the work, world of psychology. Mm-hmm. You know, those are generally frontline jobs or peer support is maybe even a, a primary job to a frontline job. Right. So the, the income may not be commensurate to what we're saying the outcome should be. If, if a lot of people gets, that are needing support get connected, that need it, they're going to be more viable as you, because they're going to be figuring out things for themselves. They're going to be able to cope more, much better. And then they're going to be able to sustain and feel better about themselves and, you know, be able to be, I, I want to be a part of society. I want to give back certain things. But if we don't give that support on the, on the early end, what, we're really setting up people to fail. Yeah. And the other part that goes with that is that the support actually goes for the peer worker and the person benefiting from them. Both are experiencing vicarious support. Both are able to create a relationship, even if it is a professional relationship. It's still something regular. It's still something anticipated and hopefully something that both parties are enjoying if they're continuing to engage uh, again and again. Um, when it comes to the sector and what they invest in, like what's the price of emotional labor? You know, they have that figured out for formal degree areas, but when you're seeing such high impact on a f- on a field that's only just beginning to develop in Canada, in particular, right? What is the price of emotional labor? When I've read reports, it's a lot more than fifteen dollars an hour, right? Mm. But that's what it relegates to quite often just because the person is a youth or because they're coming from the margins and the grants are only based in minimum wage that disregards the whole skill set outside of school that is extremely valuable but i think it's it's the whole quality of um the basic human quality of connection and empathy right we're mammals we need connection all of us do when we you know get in the same space right now we're connecting. I met you. So I feel like I know you. I can know you via um, video, but it's less than sitting across from you or behind you at an event that I spent a day with you. Mm -hmm. I experienced you. So I feel like I know you. So we have to get back to some basics to allow that connection to occur more organically like it used to right? Because yeah. it's not happening as easily to your point. And young, the youth or the marginalized, it happens. They're there now. So how do we help them? And it, I think it really becomes a bigger systemic issue where we really have to, you know, go to the power that be to kind of support that emotional connection, which is very, very basic in my opinion, but it's something that's lacking because we're seeing that it's an issue with the young, with a lot of the young people today. When I hear about even my little neck of the woods, you know, how many overdoses or suicides there are. Yeah. It's not something that I've ever heard about at that level before. So it's glaringly showing you there's a gaping wound and we need to address it because if we don't address it, it's going to unfortunately get worse and worse. Right. You know? Um, so for people listening, cause I'm sure there's a, you know, a lot of people within organizations or, um, or youth that might want to want to learn more, or maybe there's youth that want to help. I'm already out there, you know, make a difference or find out more about peer support. Tell people where, and you know, where what you do, where you kind of hang out. If they're wanting to ever consult with you, uh, maybe organizationally, um, where they people can reach you. 
so uh, right now I'm, I'm working on developing my business called the Lived Experience Lab. And the outcome of this in the long term is that it will be a hub for young people and people who want to work with young people uh, to connect on specific areas to ask for uh, young adult input and really leverage this thing called youth voice in issues that affect youth. Uh, so right now I've been introducing myself as Marty from everywhere <laughs> because it seems to be the only way to capture that. I'm based in Toronto um, and work in multiple capacities right now but really what I would like to build is my consulting practice and helping agencies particularly with the change management that comes in uh, when employing uh, young people with lived experience. Uh, so where you can find me is d-a-l-e-y-m-a-r-d-i dailymarty at gmail.com uh, or hit me up on LinkedIn and those are the best spots right now. Well, awesome, Marty. Thanks so much for uh, giving myself and my listeners your time. And I think, you know, what I, the one pebble that I'm taking away from it that I hadn't thought about it was that connection, which has kind of leveraged us to get global, is actually become, is a bit of social isolation around uh, the cell phone. And that's the, that's the pebble in the rough. I hadn't thought about it in the perspective, but you know, we always think about, let's get rid of the cell phone. Let's have those students put it away. Let's, mm -hmm. but really it's not about um, fighting it, but it's about accepting it and kind of thinking of how is it that we could create new connection based in exactly. the era that we're in. We're not going to get rid of this, um, but you know, trust is something that we have to go back to through the basics, but now we have some, I'm going to say we have different core elements with what it's going to look like in this day and age compared to maybe my time. Mm -hmm. So I, I love, I like, I love that concept and for us to recognize it and to say, okay, this is what we have to deal with, but how can we assist young people to recognize that connection is possible? Um, but to ask the questions, not to assume that we know what connection is about for them mm -hmm. and to try to kind of, organizationally for companies to really think about this, you know, what is it that you need to engage people and retain them to even consider them coming to your companies because you might engage them initially, but you're not going to retain them if you don't understand some of the things that we're talking about. So yeah. I think, I think that would be valuable for any of the, you know, companies listening today to really think about it and to eventually um, find Marnie uh, on LinkedIn um, or through her email address, which will be in the, in the uh, drop downs uh, for the podcast. So everyone listening, um, I go back again to, it's all about connection. And um, with young people, we have a service to do. We have to think along the frame of what they're telling us. And Marty shared so well what they're needing and, you know, things happen for a reason um, there's so much positives to being connected, but in turn, there's been, uh, we know the deficits that come along with connection. Let's not buck the system. Just look at the system and see what is needed for us to be more empathetic and connected uh, to the younger population, period, and even more so the marginalized population that's younger, and to see that what we can use and how we can advocate um, from, uh, you know, a macro to a micro level, from, uh, you know, high up all the way to the front line 
to be able to engage people and, and ask the questions about what is it that you need to stay connected. So thanks again uh, for being with us and for everyone listening. Uh, thanks so much for giving us your time. Uh, if you're needing anything on me, you know, um, I'm a mental health and wellness uh, keynote um, and you can reach me at roxanderhodge.com. Take care and have a great day. Okay. Bye, Marty. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.